I'm Professor Lorimer Mosley. I'm Professor of Clinical Neuroscience at the University of South Australia. So do you want to start by explaining uh, what is pain? <laughs> That's a brutal question to start with. Uh, well, I, my understanding of pain is that it is a protective feeling that's generated uh, when the brain thinks protective action is going to be good to do. Uh, the official definition of pain uh, is that pain is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms thereof. I much prefer the idea of pain as a protective bodily feeling. Why is it important for rheumatologists to consider how the experience of pain can change depending on the context, so the psychology of pain? Oh, because they're, they're interested in people having less pain, I think. I mean, the, every health professional uh, who is charged with the responsibility, I guess, of helping people with painful situations, in my view, should understand what the science tells us about pain. And contemporary pain science really emphasises the biopsychosociality of it. Uh, and context is critical, absolutely critical, because context is what uh, tells the brain whether or not protection is warranted and is going to be beneficial. So you can have your arm sliced off uh, in one context and not feel a thing. Your brain produces no pain and you could have a paper cut in another context that's very painful. The critical determinant of pain is context. Uh, and I, I mean I really like the question because you're emphasising contextual data and a, and a sensibility rather than a question that focuses on the psychology of pain which for a significant proportion of people will, will cause them to fold their arms and say oh this psychology business pain is a message. Pain's not a message from the body at all and we, we now know that 100% to be the case. Um, and I was interested in your talk, you spoke about uh, the visual and olfactory cues that could change human experiences of pain. Do you want to tell um, our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I find those studies really fascinating and really compelling uh, evidence that pain is uh, a sophisticated, the, the result of a very sophisticated processing system. Uh, so the, I think the study you're referring to, which is the one that probably triggered some of these pain studies and that was uh, looking at the effect of a blue or a red light shown together with a very cold stimulus and what the effect of the blue or the red visual cue was on pain and the data clearly show on average about a doubling of pain intensity if, if the cold stimulus is paired with a red light and we understand that because red is a highly meaningful contextual cue or, or visual cue. Uh, so is light blue actually, uh, but the red is, it means hot and it means danger and the clever brain takes that into consideration. And other people do studies with olfactory cues and uh, the fart spray experiment showing a, an almost doubling of withdrawal reflex in the presence of a disgusting odour. Uh, the, uh, the fish smell showing that in the presence of fish odour people become more suspicious uh, and if you make them suspicious they're more likely to detect the fish odour and they, they do brain imaging studies on that stuff and uh, yeah it, it only happens in uh, people who know about the phrase something smells fishy so these sort of experiments to me 
it just remind me of the fearful and wonderful complexity of the human and the whole idea that we would think pain to be a simple thing seems just nonsense right seems daft to conclude that okay humans are very complex except when it comes to pain that's just stupid in my mind so it's a very long-winded answer to the question but uh, everything matters from contemporary brain science perspective if the brain is looking out for you every cue every piece of data matters and how can rheumatologists deliver safety cues instead of danger cues when they're talking about pain yeah, I get this sort of question a lot and I think a lot of the time it's asked, people are looking for a list of do's and don'ts, um, which you could construct. You know, you could include do's would be reassurance, clever reassurance, uh, ease distress, consider mood, all these sorts of things. The don'ts would be, you know, don't say you, your joint's rotting or you've got the... the you got the joints of a 70-year-old if they're 40. They don't. They've got the joints of a 40-year-old, possibly with an inflammatory condition, but you can talk about that differently. But I'm always way more comfortable with a strategy of uh, the rheumatologist in this situation and any clinician should understand contemporary pain science because what we do know is that when you understand contemporary pain science, you intuitively... Uh, start to introduce the concepts in your conversations. You start to be aware of delivering safety cues. You start to be aware of, of postural responses in, in the person in front of you that tells you they're, they're feeling in danger. Mm. Uh, those sorts of things. So be aware of that and even feedback to people. You know, so what's your, what's your visual image of your joint in there? And if they start to describe disintegration and destruction and all that sort of stuff... That's relevant because every cue matters. So I, as a clinician, I would say, let's, let's talk about that because at the moment your understanding of the joint is not accurate. Uh, and an accurate understanding will probably reduce the extent to which your brain is trying to protect your joint. So if we keep doing those sort of things, you, you'll have less pain. Would you like to know more about that? Those sort of things. Um, yeah, it sounds more reassuring, but also more scientifically accurate, which is what you're after. Um, and I thought this was fascinating, the idea that a patient's understanding of pain, a scientific understanding and a rigorous understanding could really change their experience of pain um, over the course of a year. Why does that happen? <laughs> uh, well, if we knew it completely, we'd bottle it because the data are really exciting. Um, and it's really important as a scientist, it's very important for me to put in the caveat that uh, we are certainly not perfect at explaining it. Uh, what we do know is that when people, exactly what you said, Felicity, when people learn an accurate understanding, according to contemporary pain science, they do better. They, they do significantly better. And in that, that cohort of 1,600 people, a year later, those people are almost pain-free. I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And we're not excluding the reality of disease processes and stuff like that. Um, but why does it happen? Well, I, I would predict that that should happen uh, in my understanding of pain if we consider that pain is a protective feeling and if you can integrate into someone's processing system or their brain the knowledge that their pain system is currently being overprotective so they are actually safer than it feels, right? If you can really integrate them, then it it makes total sense to me that then the brain would protect a bit less so would start to align the feeling that it's producing with its understanding of reality so 
why it's a slow process is, is a really interesting question. So we, we don't see these immediate changes in pain when people learn stuff, but we start to see those changes emerge over weeks and they keep going. And what I think is happening is that the, the new knowledge gives the system permission to push into that protective feeling a little bit and it gets feedback to say everything's okay, so it pushes in a little bit more and then you're, you're on the journey. Uh, and if you've got a good coach to encourage you when you flare up, which you will, you'll flare up, you, know, you sort of go a bit hard on something or you have a range of these things we call dims, um, other evidence of danger, and your system tips over into a flare up, then it's very powerful to have a coach there to remind you, okay, a flare up is highly protective. It doesn't tell you you've damaged something. It doesn't tell you you've torn something or uh, what it tells you is that you pushed in a bit fast. So how can we learn from that and change the, prog- the progression plan a little bit? Yeah, so going back to you, I mean, I'd, I love talking about this stuff because it's so exciting, but uh, the, the fact that understanding pain differently changes pain is totally predicted on the basis of contemporary pain science. Um, and is it because people change their behaviour, so they're more likely to exercise and make sure they maintain relationships and do healthy behaviours because they feel a bit safer? Uh, I think it's in part because of that. Uh, I don't think that's the only thing. I mean, we've had cognitive behavioural therapy for some time and that the focus of that is really about uh, almost convincing people hurt doesn't equal harm, you can do things, you can change the way you behave, be more active, think about your thoughts, uh, do exercises that modulate that, and that's good stuff. What pain education, changing your understanding of, the, of how pain actually works, what that does is makes all of those things sensible. Because if you, if you thought through that yourself, if you have a really sore knee and someone says to you, look, I know you've got a sore knee, but you should be active and consider psychological therapies, which is best practice. Most people with a sore knee would say, well, I'm not making it up. It's real pain, so why would I be active? And why would I do psychological therapies? This is a knee problem. So we need to counter those beliefs. And what the evidence tells us is that we need to take uh, a really clever, strategic, structured and consistent approach to changing those things so that when people think, oh, what should I do? I should be more active. I should push into this buffer a little bit. I should consider how, how I'm thinking and how I'm behaving. So they drive, they're the agent of their own change, if you like. Um, and this is all driven by a scientific understanding of pain. Um, does your intervention, this intervention of education, change depending on culture and belief systems? So maybe if someone's... Um, uh, believes more in Chinese traditional medicine or alternative medicine, is it difficult to tackle this with a more scientific education approach? That's a really nice question and I guess it, it um, points to how how limited so far our impact has been and, and, and by saying our I mean the, the paint community because we are still focused on a small proportion of humanity but what we do know is that the, the way someone thinks uh, will make a contemporary science-based message easier or harder to stick. So I would, I would imagine, and I don't know of any randomised controlled trials looking at the effect of 
contemporary pain science education in uh, Chinese community. Uh, I don't I don't think that's been done, uh, but I would predict that there would be other strategies to to integrate that and to value the place they're coming from and to integrate the new knowledge into their current schema. Uh, but there are experts who have been studying how to do that in different fields, not health fields, but in education for a long time. Um, and this is a... I mean, these things are a problem in lots of spheres, right? People believing stuff that's complete nonsense in some cases. Uh, and then we have to work out, okay, so how do we how do we teach people the world's not flat if they're convinced that it is? And that's a challenge. Um, well, there's lots of um, rheumatologists from China around, so maybe you can talk to them and ask and find out. Yeah, <laughs> That'd cool. be fascinating to know. If I can add something to that, because I think that we also have to remain open-minded that there is rich data in those other understandings of the human. And that might guide our science you know it's not like it's a one-way street i think that we have to be very collaborative when we're problem solving uh, so we might learn heaps as we go into those other cultures and we might be able to have an even better understanding of the science of pain as a result this all depends on rheumatologists being able to explain to the patient why they're experiencing pain and what pain is in a really clear way do you have any strategies for rheumatologists about how to do that mm. Uh, well, rheumatologists are not the lone rangers there. It, and I'd probably say that uh, the, the key outcome that would be terrific is that all health professionals have a contemporary understanding of pain that reflects its biopsychosociality. That's something I that's... That is the contemporary understanding of pain. Um, rheumatologists have to know a lot about a lot, uh, not just about pain, but um, I guess the... Maybe a, an alternative outcome is that rheumatologists have access to experts in pain education. Um, rheumatologists, we probably can't afford for them to spend the time getting down into the nitty-gritty of pain education because it's time-consuming. It requires a, a skill set, a knowledge level that it would be hard to add to the rheumatologist's toolkit. Uh, but if they're able to operate from a place of contemporary pain science and to value with the with the patient to say, you know, I reckon what what we now understand is that people are, are having a really good response to increasing their understanding of pain, and they're experts in that. Would you like to know more about that opportunity? Uh, and then they have a, a good little network of pain educators around the place to to whom they can refer. Mm. I think that would be the better outcome. So it's almost like we need whole of community education so that we don't have any health professionals and ideally we don't have anyone talking nonsense uh, based on 400-year-old models of how the pain system works. And then we have, where it's needed, we have high-level training, uh, people with high-level training, high-level expertise in conceptual change and in facilitating learning of new models for patients and they and in funding models that work you know so really we can only afford at the moment for allied health nursing people to to spend that time uh, and we just need funding schemes that allow them to do it uh, and then it's a referral system i mean then it, it it's it's treated as though it's an intervention that's effective and that would be great because it is an intervention that's effective. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I can I can imagine you doing it with you know YouTube videos or something or some program where it's a, it's a bit easier to visualise and see what's going on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there are now lots of resources out there, and we rely heavily on those resources. Our our group has done educational videos uh, that are freely available, and Tame the Beast is one that's called Tame the Beast and. Uh, we, we do a thing called Pain Revolution, which is aiming at whole of community change of, of understanding of pain and embedding capacity in communities to explain pain well. Uh, so, you know, you can look at the resources on Pain Revolution and that will provide links to some of the really nice educational uh, videos on the web. Uh, there are books, there are people running courses, uh, and what pain revolution, the long game pain revolution is that in every community we will have a regular pain education event uh, and we resource those people. It's a free event and the public goes along so that any, any GP or other medical doctor anywhere sees someone with, uh, with pain and is able to say, OK, and can you get down to the surf club on the last Thursday of this month? Uh, here's a prescription. Go and attend that education seminar because that will give you a really interesting new opportunity to improve your life that would be my vision i would love to see that and maybe in 10 years we'll we might have something like that starting to emerge yeah and you could also get schools involved if people understood pain from a very early age they could build that into any experience they had afterwards yeah absolutely so uh Colleagues and of mine, Chris Williams at Newcastle and Steve Camper at Sydney, are, are pushing quite hard to get basic pain science curricula into schools in that area. It's very hard to squeeze it into a, uh, a, a busy curriculum, right? But uh, And I guess it's very hard to convince the decision makers while they have an old-fashioned understanding of pain. So we really have to get across the whole community it will happen, you know, quality wins in the end. We just have to be able to make the journey. And the magnitude of those effects was quite large. Yeah, it is. So the, the and it's really important to know that we're not talking about the magnitude of effects of a treatment or of education because, I mean, that is good. That's, that's effect sizes of, of around about 0.4, people understand effect sizes in randomised controlled trials. But what's really exciting about the wider data set is that when people learn, then we see these massive improvements. And they're people with a range of persistent pain-related diagnoses. So most of the, well, the biggest group is back pain. Uh, knee pain associated with arthritis or not. Uh, there are people with RA, psoriatic in that group. There are people with neuropathic pain. It's a very diverse group, but really across the board, if they learn contemporary pain science, they do way better. Uh, and the challenge for people like me now who are driving the science uh, of education, of pain education, is how do we do this better? Uh, we're not doing it nearly as well as we would like to be. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That was fascinating to hear more about pain science. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Felicity.